This is Alien. You are with Sigourney Weaver aboard the spaceship Nostromo. Something has gone wrong. I am not chicken. I will not talk. <laughs> Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 698. And together, as we have been since 2005, we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, Marvel, Star Wars, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video, events, blog, and more. Please be sure to join the community, subscribe to the podcast, and find everything at www.radio.com. So this week, we're going to head back in time and way out west as we examine the past, present, and future of Frontierland in Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World. From its origins in Disneyland and Walt Disney himself, we'll look at its origins and evolution, theme, intent, changes, and possible future. Then stay tuned for our Disney trivia question of the week and more updates at the end of the show. And if you like what you hear, please share the show and tell a friend. So sit back... Relax and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Walt Disney loved America, and he wanted Americans and the rest of the world to learn about and appreciate American heritage and recognize the importance of historical events, especially for Americans and and the freedoms that they enjoyed, which is why that sense of patriotism is so present and prevalent in Walt Disney World's Main Street USA and Liberty Square and, of course, Frontierland, which is the subject of this week's show. And this week, we're going to look at the fascinating and somewhat circuitous past, present, and future of Frontierland in Walt Disney World. And joining me once again, Back for her, I don't know how many episode, is Kendall Foreman. You may remember Kendall from such shows as 632 and 633, the unrealized attractions of Walt Disney World, Things You Can't Ever Believe Happened in Walt Disney World, Parts 1 and 2, Unbuilt Disney Parks, the Disney MGM Backlot and Burbank that never was, and shows 667 and 668, The Tomorrowland past, present, and future. So, Kendall, welcome back. Hey, I'm glad to be back as always. And I really didn't expect when we recorded the past, present, and future of Tomorrowland, you know, at that point we were pre-expo and we, I think both of us thought we'll come to that discussion and talk about how it's going to face so much change. I mean, I really expected it at Expo that we would be hearing that Tomorrowland would be getting this new revamp. And I never expected we'd be coming away from the Expo talking about the potential future of Frontierland. So that's what led me to suggest to you, maybe we need to take a look at Frontierland. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's it's very interesting and intriguing. However, I will say, having been in Tomorrowland 
in the past week or so that I'm just going to repeat the same thing I've been repeating for like the past three years because eventually I'm going to be correct that I really believe that Tomorrowland and, and Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World, and I think possibly even Disneyland too, but specifically Walt Disney World, is ripe and now I think primed for change as we approach finally the opening of Tron Light Cycle Power Run. We're seeing the closure of not just things like Stitch's Great Escape, but even some of the shops in Tomorrowland now just sort of being vacant. Um, the other night I was there and it was just used as sort of a, a seating area with some nondescript posters on the walls. So I sort of hear the uh, death knell is the wrong word, but I sort of hear the bell sounding for the reimagineering of a land that I think, as we said during that episode, is ready for it and to a certain degree might need it. And, and I think the time... I think now is the time. Now is the best time for a Tomorrowland update. Yeah, definitely. Maybe it's just going to turn out to be more of a trickle than an abrupt <laughs> <Right>. stopping point. <laughs> but it's interesting how you talk about Frontierland, because we will certainly talk about what the future of Frontierland, at least on a relatively immediate basis, looks like. But like we did for Tomorrowland, we want to look back at the history and the legacy of Frontierland <clears throat> Excuse me, it's, it's connections, obviously, to Frontierland in Disneyland, um, where we are now and what the future may hold, and not necessarily a, a deep dive into every single attraction and, and evolution of each. I actually did that in my audio tour of Frontierland, not to sound like a shameless plug, but it's a shameless plug. You can find it on Spotify and on www.radio.com. So let's talk instead about things like theme and feel and intent and evolution and what the future holds for this land that is set in, you know, real and somewhat fanciful days gone by from the United States from the 17th through the 19th century, which is really, and I think the land itself is is such a testament to this, this power of the frontier experience in, in helping to shape America. Yeah, definitely. And I think a great place to start is just to go back to that that original dedication and the actual opening uh, day Disneyland special. And, and in the dedication, it mentions things like here we experience the story of our country's past, as you said, but then also the colorful drama of frontier America and the exciting days of the covered wagon and the stagecoach, the advent of the railroad and the romantic riverboat. And in that original uh, Disneyland broadcast, you can see all of those things that 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 the frontier land of Disneyland on opening day was looked like a vast frontier. And I think it perhaps was maybe the most literal of all the <laughs> lands in Disneyland. It was it was very tactile and very experiential because there were stage coaches. There was a railroad. There was a covered wagon. And and I mean, there was literal the the pavement. It wasn't pavement. It was it was crushed gravel, and so it gave you this feel of the sand of the frontier and just these big open plain areas. Yeah, and it's interesting, sort of, when you look at the the similarities and the differences between the two. And look, Walt Disney World's opening time of Frontierland. It looked like the frontier because there wasn't necessarily a lot there, much like we said in Tomorrowland. But 
I think in in the the Disneyland version, the idea was to give a much more authentic, rustic, historical version of the American West than what we got with the Walt Disney World version, which is a little bit more humorous in tone and areas. It's a little bit more brightly colored. It's a little bit more fanciful, almost maybe taking some more inspiration from not just American history, but you know, movies and TV shows and, you know, even cartoons that help to describe and for some people sort of define what the American, what the quote unquote old West used to look like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Disneyland's is, is more focused on that, those wide open plains versus Walt Disney World. You get more, even though it is very large, you get more of this contained feeling from the different buildings that are there and obviously Disneyland had presence of actual animals, you know, be they pack mules or the pet, the, you know, the Big Thunder Ranch that was there versus in Walt Disney World. We never have that. And and even though it was a very historically based experience at Disneyland, it also kind of is it is almost the first experience of of corporate synergy. Because, I mean, at that point in time, you had the most popular thing on the Disneyland television series was that three-part Davy Crockett. And shortly after Disneyland opens, it's now so popular because of the original series and the presence of Davy Crockett and, and all of that type of feel in Disneyland. And now you get more Davy Crockett specials. And while there is Davy Crockett influence in Walt Disney World, you get to a point where it, it's a little more removed than you know, having Fez Parker on your Disneyland television special and and with such a large presence in the land. Yeah, I mean, it's almost instead of trying to replicate the look of the old, the authentic Old West during that time period, he was more trying to almost imitate the look of what, what, what we were seeing in not only things like Davy Crockett, but other country Western films and, and Western, you know, you know, Westerns at the time were, were, were it was sort of the hot thing on TV and in movies. So it was not the historical West, but this quote unquote wild West that was being influenced by the country Western films and the sense of nostalgia. I think sort of we get a similar type of um, of, of a feeling and impression on Main Street USA. Right? It's not it's not really like an authentic representation, but it is influenced by this this idealized view of what we wanted Main Street USA to look like. So it was less about the the true history than the ideological history that was created by the country western genre. And I think it's, it's interesting too because I think when they were designing Walt Disney World and realized with the success of Disneyland that they were not just going to be catering to a domestic audience but an international audience, you had to design a park that was not only going to be just for Americans and American families who are familiar with with relevant U.S. history and mythology and Western films of the fist the fifties, you now had to sort of create almost a, a like a fanciful, almost a, an imaginary setting for international guests because there there is no link right, but for them between this land and their personal history. So now there's this romanticized version of U.S. history that we as Americans have seen in films, in cartoons, and then there's almost like a fictionalized version of history 
as opposed to it being grounded in an actual, you know, specific reality. But I think what it did too, Kendall, was it offered, and I think I think they really took this opportunity, especially in Walt Disney World. I think there was an opportunity afforded to Imagineers to use Frontierland as a teaching tool about real American history. And I think that they leveraged that subtly and, and more overtly in some different places because I think they did want to make sure that they did incorporate real American history. And, and I think of things like the inclusion of the large Native American village uh, visible from the railroad and the Liberty Bell Riverboat. Um, there was, and it's not there anymore, uh, there was even a very, very subtle tribute to the role of the Chinese and, and Asian Americans in in build helping to build the railroads and establishing Asian communities out in the West. There used to be a sign right next to, on the facade of Pecos Bills for a Chinese laundry. And it was a very, very small, thin, but that was sort of meant to be that the representation of as the railroads were being built and then after they were being built, the, the uh, this influx of um, uh, Asians who had come to the country established Chinese laundries, especially along the West Coast and created communities and created this industry. So I, I like the fact that they did take this more, again, idealized version of American history. We wanted to make sure they included and and represented certain parts of history that could not and should not have been left out. Well, and I think part of that almost comes about because in Disneyland, you have an entrance right from the hub, right directly into Frontierland versus at Walt Disney World, you're moving from the very real history of Liberty Square and to just abruptly move into something that's that's completely fanciful would seem probably kind of strange. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of get this like intermingling of of real history and real literary history with Mark Twain, and then also, you know, some of the, you know, Pecos Bill and some of those more fanciful, you know, Disney-fied type things sprinkled throughout that to kind of ease you out of Liberty Square. And it's why I, I love and I love paying attention to and and when I go with friends or family or, or other people to to the parks, especially Magic Kingdom. I love showing a lot of these little details, some of which come and go, but. You know, again, like I, I miss the Chinese laundry sign because it was one of those things that was representative of the details that helped to tell an accurate historical story because of how ref how important the Chinese workers were on the transcontinental railroad and that expansion of America going west. Yeah, definitely, and I think it, it is interesting that that was gone. I don't know. You know, you know, for what reason they decided to remove that because they have made so many choices since 1971. They're in Frontierland to more accurately and, and more respectfully portray, uh, you know, various people groups or just history in general. Yeah, I think sometimes and I used to I've talked to, you know, people I've, way back when, when, you know, when, when the late Dave Smith was around from from the Walters archives, he says, yeah, sometimes things, you know, disappear because somebody just doesn't know why it's there. And sometimes, you know, a box is just a box, but sometimes that box is there because it represents something that is an important or sometimes significant detail. Um, and I, I don't know if that's, if the Chinese laundry sign is gone for any particular reason, but I know that the last few times I was there, I haven't seen it. But 
and again, we'll talk about some, but as I, you know, in the, in the audio tours, I really try and pick a lot of those details out in Adventureland, in Frontierland, in Liberty Square to help make people aware that, that there is significance there. And like I said, there's an oppor- there's a learning opportunity there um, for not just kids, but for adults too, to learn about real American history. Well, yeah, one of my favorite uh, details in Frontierland is actually where that delineation occurs between Liberty Square and Frontierland, and that that happens there at the Diamond Horseshoe Review. And, you know, as any good 80s and 90s kid who played Oregon Trail knows, the Oregon <laughs> Trail started in Missouri. And that that Diamond Horseshoe Saloon is supposed to kind of be more representative of St. Louis, Missouri, which the Oregon Trail started in Independence. but same kind of idea there that you're moving that that's your spot when you've decided you're moving from east you're going west and that's what they did there and you know between the division between liberty square and frontier land and i think that's just an interesting thing to point out to people you know an interesting historical thing and i also just love that building too because the golden horseshoe and the diamond horseshoe both the interiors of those buildings were based off of um the the saloon that was in Calamity Jane, the mm-hmm. Doris Day film. And I just, I love that movie since I was a kid. So I love going in there and just feeling like I'm, I've stepped inside of the movie. And that's one of those details that I, I loved. You know, I used to do, um, I used to do like guided tours of, of Magic Kingdom. And that was one of the details I loved showing people because you literally walk over it and I bet you 99% of the people don't know that it's there. Because like you said, the Diamond Horseshoe is representative of that edge of the frontier in St. Louis in the 1840s. And when you get to that gateway to Frontierland and there's that covered breezeway to the left that connects Adventureland, if you look down and see some of the subtle changes in the pavement and that small little wooden bridge in front of you, if you look to the left, you'll see that there's like a small stream of water, which is meant to represent that you are physically and metaphorically crossing the mighty Mississippi River to get into this wild west frontier la- frontier town. And that small stream that drains under the bridge flows into the rivers of America. Insert, you know, grandiose music here. It's a small detail that doesn't have or require a sign, but when you see it, you're like, oh, I get it now. Like, I see why this thing is there. It is not just an aesthetic kinetic element having that small running stream but it's meant to represent something much more significant yeah and i think you know this is a probably a good spot to stop and think too that when you stood there in 1971 and you looked ahead you know you saw all those buildings on your left of frontier land but then it just you know very different from today it just came to an end (laughs) and as as far as i'm i know you were you know, you were there opening year. The the Frontierland train station was not completed at opening, correct? Right. It didn't open yeah. till 72. And, and it's obviously very different than the one that we see today. Yeah. I mean, you would have had this just and and I, it almost makes me wonder what was a better representation of the frontier? You know, the, the vast Disneyland open plane or the fact that <laughs> right. as you're moving west, there really was nothing out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, like what there would have, you know, what there really literally would have been when people moved west, you know, the the 
the train, the transcontinental railroad was not completed. You know, there were just, you know, a few small towns and buildings out West. And it probably did give you a pretty accurate feeling, just this small little train station that wasn't quite done yet. Yeah. I mean, there really wasn't a lot, excuse me, if you look at, at pictures of Frontierland from late 71, early 72, there's not much to see other than the train station, the very small, relatively nondescript train station that's under construction and way, way, way off in the distance where they still stand today were two or three totem poles that you would be able to see would be visible from the Liberty Square riverboat that were almost sort of marking the spot where, and again, it's a longer conversation for another day, but we're going to talk about Thunder Mesa where this phase two was going to be. Because remember when, Magic Kingdom first opened in 71, there was only one train station. And you got on the train on Main Street USA, you got off the train in Main Street USA because it literally was a grand circle tour around the park until the Frontierland station opened eight months later in May 72. So all that was there was this tiny little shack and there was a water tower. Uh, There was a, a, a real working sort of utility water tower for the train station, but that was that was the westernmost part of Frontierland for nearly two decades, which again, like you said, gives you an idea of the next time you go to Frontierland, imagine all that being just relatively empty and desolate. Yeah, and I I think it's interesting you mentioned Thunder Mesa. I was flipping through my maps, my map of the Disney Parks book, and on that uh, aerial character map that we all think of that has the pictures of the Venetian and the Asian and the Persian resorts on it for listeners. If you can envision which one I'm talking about, that map actually has Thunder Mesa on it on, on the far West side. And then very quickly it disappears. I think by the time you actually get to the park map that it's, it's not on there as a, as a coming attraction, even though it was very much still in Imagineers minds at the, at the time when Walt Disney world opened, um, but unfortunately for a lot of different factors, this massive show building that would have actually been taller than Cinderella castle and included, you know, so much of what Walt Disney world's frontier land was supposed to be, you know, because of economic factors and people's desire for pirates of the Caribbean and, and a lot of different things, we don't get that big, you know, final push to the West that was supposed to be there. And Thunder Mesa is deserving of its own episode. Um, if you would like to join me, I think it'd only be appropriate because thun- this is no- when we talk about Thunder Mesa, we're not talking about just an unbuilt attraction. Um, this was significant in many, many ways, uh, including sort of, and we've talked about Mark Davis in the past, sort of the impact on Mark Davis and his work, because this really was a Mark Davis brainchild, baby, as it were. And it wouldn't, Thunder Mesa was not just this e-ticket attraction that was going to be the Western River, Western River, wait, Western River (laughs) Expedition. But like you said, Thunder Mesa was a thing. It was a place. It was this four-story show building where, imagine where Big Thunder Mountain currently sits, which was going to look like the desert, and the mesas of Utah's Monument Valley, and it would have dramatically changed 
the landscape, not just of Frontierland, but I think of Magic Kingdom, because it almost would have been, and this is what Mark Davis really had envisioned, was this was not a singular attraction, but almost its own mini land, which would not have just had this runaway mine train ride, but hiking trails and waterfalls and flora and fauna and, and a Pueblo Native American village and maybe even like a pack mule, you know, winding its way up and down. And again, we'll get deeper into why this never took place. And you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean finance being a, a, a huge part of it. But, you know, imagine what if and how different Frontierland would have been, how different Magic Kingdom would have been. And that entire section back there where, you know, Splash and Big Thunder and that that whole space back there would have been its own sort of mini land that was towering in scope and size. Yeah, and you almost have to, I mean, you have to stop and think, obviously, you know, with that kind of outlay and as much as what would have been contained in it, because, you know, obviously plans changed over the course of what was, you know, several years development and and trying to, re, you know, reinvent it in order to still be able to do it and things. At one point, it included a restaurant. Another, it included, you know, a, a water rapid ride on the outside, you know, but the most important ride, the Western River Expedition that would have been inside, it's hard to imagine with as large as that would have been, as much outlay as it would have been, that that would not still be standing there today. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, you know, if you, you think about what would have, potentially we would not have. We, we wouldn't have Big Thunder Mountain. We wouldn't have Splash Mountain. We wouldn't be talking about Princess and the Frog, most likely, unless they were going to re-theme the entire thing. You know, it, it would... And it also makes it a little bit interesting to think, would Frontierland right now perhaps even be even more cohesive than what it mm. is? You know, not that Splash Mountain doesn't fit, but doesn't fit as well as what Thunder Mesa probably would have. If you think it doesn't fit now, just hold my churro because it's right. It's and and we'll see how how uh, Tiana's is going to fit it. But but you're right. It would have been a much more cohesive look, feel, time frame, story elements, all the different attractions that you would have had in there. Because like you said, this building was big and, and would have at, at some point there was discussion of you know potentially three different attractions that could have been there. And this plane was very, very far in flight. This was not just a blue sky concept, like huge, elaborate models were built. They started working on some of the audio animatronics. Mary Blair, the Disney legend, had done a lot of concept paintings and land was already being cleared for the show building, um, you know, as as they were getting closer to opening of Magic Kingdom. Then they're like, all right, let's just sort of hold on to this this will be, you know, phase two as part of phase one. And then, like you said, for, for a variety of reasons, and including, you know, Disney Company President Card Walker saying, yeah, the guests are right. And, you know, for, for financial purposes, we're going to shelve Big Thunder. We're going to shelve Thunder Mesa and instead build a an East Coast Pirates of the Caribbean and Adventureland instead. Yeah, and then obviously by the time things roll around, economy improves, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is done and they're considering doing something a little more. And they're also considering similar factors out on the West Coast in Disneyland. It's decided to take the 
the first baby step and build Big Thunder Mountain, which an iteration of was a part of Thunder Mesa. But, you know, move forward with just the Big Thunder Mountain portion. And I think we can all agree fits perfectly well within Frontierland and, you know, when it was built there in Walt Disney World. And I, I actually found something in, very, very interesting that, um, and and I know, I believe it was an episode with Jim Corcus that you guys covered, a, perhaps the SEA episode. There's a 1992 issue of Disney News Magazine. I love looking back at these um, on Internet Archive. For all you listeners out there, if you're, if you're bored, look up Internet Archive, look Disney News Magazine there, treasure trove of you know, historical Disney information. But in there, there was an article called, Did You Hear About the One? And these are backstories for tons of different Disney attractions. And one of them that is in there was an original backstory during Tony Baxter's development of Big Thunder Mountain. And it includes the story of one Jason Chandler. Hmm. And he, uh, and I, I think Jim mentioned this on the episode, but the, the original story goes, he had created this drilling machine and they were going to drill down to get the gold, you know, uncover this great mother load in Big Thunder Mountain. And, you know, as, as they do this, there's an earthquake and the miners are buried and Jason Chandler is able to, you know, use his drilling machine to get the miners out. But he is lost to the cavern and never heard from again. And some listeners might be thinking, I've heard the name Jason Chandler before. <laughs> And obviously this story didn't, it was not what they continued on with when they built Big Thunder Mountain, but J Jason Chandler did not disappear. He resurfaces again at a later date when Disney was actually considering creating Discovery Bay out on the West Coast. Um, and his character in in this iteration, he did not die. He he made his way out of Big Thunder Mountain, and now they have taken the funds from Big Thunder Mountain to build Discovery Bay. And they actually went so far with this as to record a pilot television show hmm. that you can find on the internet that includes uh, Pete Renaday as Jason Chandler, and it, it only lasts about seven or eight minutes. And I think Tony Baxter actually may have shown this at at a destination d or something but very interesting to see kind of the evolution of this concept for walt disney world and disneyland's big thunder mountain and then a potential television tie-in and then bring it all the way forward why is this important anymore any longer well today jason chandler is the signature on a letter that appears in Big Thunder Mountain, a letter to Barnabas T. Bullion. So that character is not gone. And in that letter, he signs as a member of the SEA. I have a huge smile on my face because I just love how you connect the dots. And again, everything has its meaning. And, and these good ideas, including characters that nobody really knows, don't get lost. And then when you see that and when somebody like you puts the pieces together of that puzzle. You're like, Oh gosh, it just makes sense. And it's just, and I love it. I love it. These are, are the details that obviously get me excited because I'm a total nerd, but you know, what's interesting too, is we talk about things like Thunder Mesa and big Thunder mountain railroad, it sort of, again, helps to distinguish and differentiate 
the Walt Disney World version of Frontierland from its California counterpart because, again, it's more fast-paced. It's more theming and definitely more humor than we see or, or we did see, certainly at that time, uh, in in Disneyland in California versus the, the, the tone that they were looking to go with for Walt Disney World. That's going to do it for part one of our look at the past, present, and future of Frontierland. Tune in next week for part two of our journey. But in the meantime, go to www.com slash clubhouse and share your earliest memories of Frontierland in Magic Kingdom. Did you get a chance to go when it first opened in 1971 and looked markedly different from what we have now? Do you remember the original train station, the mile-long bar? Maybe some of the Country Bear Jamboree special holiday-themed overlays. Share your thoughts, your comments, and your memories by going to www.com slash clubhouse and tune in next week for part two. It's time for our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details in which you see, hear, taste, or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is brought to you by the Out Travel the System podcast by Expedia, where Out Travel the System isn't just a podcast, but it's really a toolkit for travelers looking to plan their next escape. And like other travel podcasts, it's about great storytelling and travel inspiration, which is the heart of each episode, but they're differentiating what they do by providing utility for you, the listener. Because the idea is that at the end of each episode, you're going to feel inspired and armed with practical key takeaways to apply to your travel experience. From the best times to book, to how to stretch your dollars, to experience more, and even what you need to pack, Out Travel the System is the place to go for travel hacks and connecting travelers with experts as well. Listen and subscribe to Out Travel the System if you want to travel like a pro and take the stress out of planning and booking your next vacation, I was actually a recent guest on the October 21st episode of Out and Travel the System, where I share tips on the best lodging options at Walt Disney World. Tips and, of course, a few of my favorites. You can listen to that episode on Apple Podcasts by going to www.radio.com OTTS. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week we were talking about the holidays in Walt Disney World, and I asked you to tell me what was the name of the holiday parade that ran from 2004 to 2007 at the Disney MGM Studios. Did you get this one correct? Because it was, of course, the Hollywood Holiday Parade. This ran from November 24th, 2004 through New Year's Day, and then it returned in 2005, 6, and 7 during the holiday seasons. And if you remember the parade or look at photos or videos from it, you might see that this looks somewhat familiar. And if so, you're right, because it was actually the Disney Stars and Motor Cars Parade, really with just sort of a holiday makeover. Because the parade of cars, which were originally themed towards movies and TV shows, were now decorated to look like presents and gift boxes and ornaments and trees. Mickey and Minnie were the Grand Marshals, obviously dressed in their holiday best, and their car was now more like a Christmas sleigh, but there was also Monsters, Inc. and Toy Story, The Muppets, Star Wars, Mulan, Aladdin, Mary Poppins, Hercules, Villains, Lilo and Stitch, Little Mermaid, Playhouse Disney, and many more, including The Muppets with Sweetums. 
Anyway, I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were playing for a new WW Radio mug, a pin, and a holiday-themed mystery prize. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Joshua Mason. So, Joshua, congratulations. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So as we are talking about the past and present and next week, a little bit about the future of Frontierland, Tiana's Bayou Adventure, which is going to open in late 2024, is not going to mark the first time that Princess Tiana and some of her friends have been found in Magic Kingdom. Because in addition to meet and greets during special events, there was, for a short time, a Tiana show in Magic Kingdom and one that actually made its way through or by Frontierland. What was the name of this special celebration? What was the name of the special Tiana celebration in Magic Kingdom, which is now extinct? You have until Sunday, November 27th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast. Once again, you're going to play for the mug, the pin, and a holiday mystery Disney prize. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to tune in this and every week. I hope you had fun. I hope maybe you learned something. It brought back some memories, or at the very least, the show brought a little bit of happiness and Disney magic to your day and your week. Speaking of this week, it is a special one in the United States. And while Thanksgiving is a holiday that's only celebrated here, I have always believed that this is one of those holidays like Mother's Day or Father's Day that shouldn't only be celebrated just one day a year. It should be celebrated and appreciated every day, all year long. And I don't think Thanksgiving should just be a U.S. holiday. And here's why, because it's not just about American history, like we're talking about in Frontierland and and heritage and, and giving thanks. And it's definitely not about turkey and stuffing and football and the naps that come after, but it's about thanks and giving, which I think gets lost sometimes. So so this week, in lieu of a normal outro where I share links and reminders, I actually have a favor to ask of you. I ask that not only you be mindful and thankful for what you have, because it's not about what, but who. Your family, your friends, your health, your job, whatever it may be, there is always a reason to give thanks, to choose the good and find something to be thankful for. But more importantly, I'm also going to ask you to give. Not money and not even time. It's actually very simple and maybe somewhat ridiculous. This week, I want you to give a stranger a smile. I'm serious. I talk about positivity being contagious. Sometimes giving a stranger a smile or even just a little bit of courtesy and politeness might be the only one that they get all day or all week. And you never know the positive difference and impact that it might have on that person. And guess what? You're going to feel pretty good too. Let me know how it goes. Connect with me on social at Lou Mangiello, anywhere and everywhere. And finally, I am thankful for you, for everything our friendship because we are friends, whether we have met yet or not, 
means to me and the show and the community, which you are such a critical part of. So thank you. That's it this week. That's all I have to share with you. Go to www.com for the links and posts and events and more and the clubhouse for the community and conversation. But happy Thanksgiving. Three super important words. Wherever you are, that's what it's all about. I love you. I appreciate you. See ya.